Friends, good morning. Believe me when I tell you, it is good to see you. It's great to be back and great to have many of you back who have been ill. Uh, delighted to be with you this morning. As uh, Nick prayed, we're grateful for those of you who helped Ruth uh, unload her mother's uh, belongings yesterday. So thank you to those who uh, gave them a hand unloading uh, their uh, trailer or vehicle or whatever it was. So appreciate those of you who stepped up to do that. Thank you. Uh, as uh, Keith mentioned, many of us uh, uh, were up at uh, up in I can't remember what town it is, Clayton, uh, at a men's conference and uh, enjoyed fellowship up there. It's heard some uh, uh, really good preaching while we were up there. And uh, my apologies to you men who were there because you will now hear the same thing that I preached yesterday morning. I have not yet developed the ability to develop two sermons in one week. So maybe when I grow up, I'll be, able to, uh, I'll be able to do that. So let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. And as we begin today, I'll read uh, the entirety of Psalm 84, which is just 12 verses. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The earthly early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is God's inerrant and holy word. May he bless what we've read. And let's just ask for his help as we proceed today. Lord, uh, strengthen us to hear your word uh, this morning. Uh, fill us with your spirit afresh. So give us attentive minds and hearts. Lord, whether we're here in the sanctuary or whether we're watching at home, give us uh, attentiveness to your very words and strengthen me as I preach today, my throat and uh, my heart. Clear my mind and help me to preach your word clearly today. We we come hungry and thirsty to be fed from your word, so do please satisfy us with your truth, Christ Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. In Ephesians 5.25, the Apostle Paul writes these very familiar words, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love for the church is a well-established fact. Uh, But Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, a frequent uh, guest and uh, teacher with Ligonier Ministries, goes further and suggests that we too should love the church in the same way. In his recent book, Devoted to God's Church, Dr. Ferguson says, as a disciple of Jesus... I, too, should love the church. 
It should become central to my life. It is simply not possible to live a God-centered, Christ-centered, Spirit-led life unless my life is also church-centered. That is a significant statement. And I want to read it again because perhaps your initial impulse is to resist that. Uh, listen to what he says. It is simply not possible to live a God-centered Christ-centered, spirit-led life, unless my life is also church-centered. Anything that is of central importance to the Lord Jesus Christ must also be central to the Christian. Dr. Ferguson, regardless of what you think of his statement, whether you regard that as over the top or not, he's simply stating what we see throughout the New Testament scriptures, a follower of Jesus simply cannot live the Christian life on his or her own. We, we have seen this uh, in the last several decades. Many believers believe that, that it's just up to them and Jesus, and they're fine by themselves. This is not the case. It has never been the case. When you uh, trust, when you, when you gain a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through trusting in him for salvation, not only do you get a personal relationship with Christ, you get a corporate relationship with his body at the very same time. And so I say again, uh, you simply cannot live the Christian life on your own. You are part of a body. You are part of a household. You are part of a building, not this building, but the building that the church is described as. You are a timber or a frame connected with other believers. Now, you might not have any trouble with these statements, and you might be all on board with that. I hope you are. But to ask this to some Christians in this era to center their lives around the ministry of a local church, to them it's simply asking too much. You've gone too far. That's over the top. Calling me to live a church-centered life, such a commitment to Christ's bride perhaps comes across as heavy-handed. And, and there are some who might go so far as to call this legalism. But listen to the word of God in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How, how could obeying Christ's command in this passage, the command to meet together for worship, be considered legalism? Living a church-centered life is sadly not the way many Christians live their lives today. In fact, one pastor recently lamented on Facebook, Today is the Lord's Day. Why do professing Christians neglect those things, such as active participation in a local church, that will benefit them so much? Sometimes folks imagine that they need family time, and church takes away from that. Church participation can be the best of family time. What if you plan to be at all of your church's service with your family in 2022? Change bedtime on church days. Don't schedule other family events on church days. Try to avoid career paths that frequently take you out of church. Keep a journal in 2022 with all of your church experiences. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and special services. I think that journaling will help you walk through the 52 weeks of 2022. It will be wonderful for you at the end of the year to read of how God blessed you, your family, and your church through such a joyful commitment. And those are the words of our good friend Ray Rhodes. So how can you and I develop what is clear throughout the pages of the New Testament and 
what Dr. Ferguson calls us to, this God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life that is also church-centered. How do we develop this church-centered life in ourselves and also in the life of others? How do we become and help others become what I would refer to as good churchmen? And I use the word men in the most generic sense. Of course, good church women as well. How do we become good churchmen? Well, this is what we want to look to and find out from Psalm 84 this morning. Uh, the author writing this psalm, one of the sons of Korah, is clearly living a church-centered life, temple-centered in his day, of course. And he describes four ingredients of a church-centered life. There are four components, four things, four ingredients that go into uh, living a church-centered life. And I want to demonstrate these to you as Psalm 84 unfolds before us. The first ingredient that he describes to us is the passion for God's house. Uh, the writer expresses his passionate longing to be near God's presence at the temple in Jerusalem. And I want to mention four things about this passion for God's house. First of all, I want you to see the language of passion. I want you to see the words and terms and phrases that he uses to communicate his passion for God's house. Uh, notice verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place. Uh, scholar Derek Kidner refers to this very opening phrase, how lovely. He describes this as the language of love poetry. Indeed, many of us would not connect the term lovely in the house of the Lord uh, together in, in the same sentence. Uh, we just wouldn't do it. I, I use the word lovely often when I'm speaking about my wife's appearance. Uh, but this is the way the writer refers to the temple in Jerusalem. He, he has such great affection uh, for worship at the temple that he describes it as lovely. And then... Uh, he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And then verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints. To, to long for something is to desire something strongly or consistently. This writer yearns for the courts of the Lord. And then the word faints means to be spent, to be used up, to come to an end, to waste away. It indicates that he might be some distance away from the temple and unable to attend uh, worship at the temple in Jerusalem. His absence from worship at the temple has left him exhausted spiritually and spent. He's about to give out. Verse 2 concludes, My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And, and the phrase sing for joy might be better translated cry out. Uh, that term can refer to a shout of joy. It can also simply mean cry out. And it's not so much joy he's describing, but volume. It's a term for a loud cry. My heart and flesh cry out to the living God. This is how he's describing his passion through these, through these terms. He's expressing desperate longing for God's house and his passionate desire to be there to worship God. Now, I think it's worth our time to pause and ask, can we even, can we even apply this to us here in this era? On the other side of the cross, how do we apply these verses to our to our own experience. Well, we have to recognize first that the location is different for us under the new covenant. We no longer worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason is because Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law through his payment for sin on the cross. 
This is clearly expressed in Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ was the one that the temple ceremonies pointed to. He came and fulfilled the law on our behalf. And the temple of God now, uh, the New Testament refers to the temple of God as his people, both individually and collectively. And so worship at the temple has been replaced by worship in a local assembly of believers. And so we have to stand apart and say, of course, our location is different. We can apply this when we think of uh, the church, the body of Christ, instead of the temple. And God's word calls us to the same passionate longing for him. Does, does it not? This is John Piper's bread and butter. He's made a living off of this. And he calls it a, the dangerous duty of delight. Psalm 37.4 expresses this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then Jesus' words in Mark 12, And you shall love the Lord your God, listen to this, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Very similar sentiments to what this author is expressing in Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. Well, first we see the language of passion, the words and phrases that this express his longing for God's house. It's really the language of love poetry, as Derek Kidner points out. And it's language we can apply to ourselves in the church, the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to see secondly here that it is an all-consuming passion. We see this language of passion, and then we see it, it's all-consuming. Also, look at verse 2 again, and let me point out some terms that express this. He says, my soul longs. That's the Hebrew term nephesh, referring to the inner person, the essence of who someone is. And then he goes on to say, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart Heart refers to uh, someone's cockpit or the control center. The heart is the seat of our emotions. Uh, it's uh, where our intellect is located. It's where our thought processes come from and our, our decision-making. He's not referring to um, this organ in the center of your chest. He's not just referring to your emotional state like we do when we use the word heart. I love you with all my heart. This, no, no, this contains his thought processes, his decisions. It, it is uh, the cockpit. It's where the plane flies. It's where the pilot flies. All direction comes from the cockpit. This is what the heart is in Scripture. And then the, the next word, my heart and my flesh, and that's referring to the outer man his physical body. And so you put those three terms together and it, they describe the entire person. Every, every part of him longs for God's house. He desires to worship God with every fiber of his being. Uh, one, another scholar says that these terms designate the whole man with every faculty and affection. And so I want you to see, secondly, not only does he use passionate language, but it is an all-consuming thing for this author. Uh, his entire being is, is wrapped up in, in longing for worship at the house of God. The third thing I want to point out here is the object of passion. And object should probably be uh, capitalized. Capital O there. Look at verse 2 one more time. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. See, it's not just the temple in Jerusalem the author longs to see. 
the place where the ceremonies and sacrifices are carried out. No, what he's longing for, what his entire being desires, is God himself. He describes him as the living God. This is uh, a phrase used several times throughout Scripture, the living God. It's uh, often used to contrast the God of the Bible with the dead idols of unbelievers. In Acts chapter uh, 14, after Paul and Barnabas uh, perform miracles, the town of Lystra wants to offer sacrifices to them because they believe that these men are gods. But Paul stands up and says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn, turn from these things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then Paul uses this name for God again in 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Again, we hear that name, but also again, we hear that the temple of God is now located in his people collectively and individually. For we are the temple of the living God. And so what this writer is expressing is, is he longs to worship the real God, not a, not a lifeless idol. He longs for the one true God of Israel, the living God. And besides this, there's another name that his longing is, is tied up with. And this is a name that we see four times throughout the psalm. And, and that name is, O Lord of hosts. We see that in verse 1. Look at your Bible. It, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And then down to verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. Uh, verse 8, O God, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. And verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. These hosts, you might remember, are probably a reference to the angelic host or angel armies. Uh, o Lord God of angel armies uh, uh, that, that are under his command. This name, Lord of hosts, communicates that God rules over all powers in heaven and on earth. There is at least one version that translates this phrase, trying to get to the essence of what it means. It translates these words as God Almighty. So the object of his worship is not an idol that can neither hear nor answer prayer. The object of his worship is God Almighty. The God who possesses all power and strength. The God who rules all powers in heaven and on earth. This majestic and supremely holy God is the object of his worship. No wonder he has such a longing to be at the house of God in Jerusalem to worship this God. So is this the God you worship? God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the living God, the Lord of hosts. The same God. Paul refers to him in 2 Corinthians as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Perhaps we don't share a passionate longing for the house of God because we have a fairly puny idea of who our God is. Again, John Piper has done much to elevate our thinking in this area. R.C. Sproul has done much uh, to get us to consider the holiness of God, his, his great majesty, his transcendent beauty. And another a pastor and well-known author writing, oh, I would say roughly 100 years ago, at least uh, 90 or 80 years ago, wrote this. And it's difficult to believe, but I, I have no doubt it's true that he would, 
he described the church of his day like this. He said, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so shameful as to be utter, utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation the more tragic. Tozer goes on to say, it's my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century, we're now in the 21st century, of course, the Christian conception of God is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to con constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God that, that He is, what He is like, and what we as moral beings must do about Him. Friends, the only way we're, we're going to uh, share this author's passion for the house of God is to share this author's passion for God himself, the living God, the Lord of hosts. Well, there's a fourth thing here I want you to see, and that's the author's envy that his passion produces. Uh, he is a jealous man. All those who are able to be close to the temple, he is in envy of them who can be so near the grounds of the temple precincts. And this envy extends to even the birds nested in the rafters of the temple area that fluttered about the grounds. Look at verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Hear, that, hear the lofty view of God, the, the, his majestic view of God's exalted being. Uh, my King and my God. But, but he's saying, oh, if only I could find a perch like the birds who build their nests up in the eaves, then I could be close to the place where God reveals himself. And we see this envy extend to the priests who serve in the temple on a daily basis. Verse 4 expresses, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. We, I want you to, to note the word blessed there. Uh, these people who are able to minister in the Lord's presence, they are blessed. This refers to uh, being satisfied and, and finding your happiness and contentment with God. Oh, how happy are those who dwell in your house. Oh, what contentment and, and what satisfaction they find from being so near your presence. I, I envy these men. They're, they're, they're in an enviable, enviable position. And so he expresses this envy, his longing. To, really, it's just another expression of his longing to be near the house of God. I wish it could be like those who are able to be so close all the time. These priests that live on, on the temple uh, grounds, these, these birds that nest in the, in the eaves. So we develop this by this, this church-centered life. We adopt and, and grow into this church-centered existence by developing a passion for God's house like this author expresses. A longing to be near God's presence, not at the temple, of course, but with fellow believers in the body of Christ on the Lord's day. The passion for God's house. Well, as we go further, we see a second ingredient that goes into developing this church-centered life. The second ingredient we find is the priority of God's house. 
those dedicated to worshiping at the Lord's house find themselves refreshed and strengthened. And I want to mention three things here in the priority of God's house. First of all, we see the determination, uh, the determination of, of those who worship at the temple to be there. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those. There's the word blessed again. And, and this is significant. Take, take note and remember, it, we're talking about satisfaction and contentment and joy in the Lord. Blessed and content. Oh, how happy are those whose strength is in you. Uh, these people find strength, and, 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 and here's the cause of their blessing and their strength in this next phrase, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. He's talking about people who make pilgrimage uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. Another version uh, says, another version says, uh, uh, happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. See, Jewish males were required to travel uh, to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. Deuteronomy 16 uh, describes this requirement of Jewish males. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Those who have set it as a priority in their cockpit, note, in whose hearts are the highways designed. They're, they have determined, they have purposed, they've made the decision ahead of time. Those who, who are determined to go to worship they find their contentment in God. They find spiritual stamina in God. Again, we're, we're not talking about a, a temple in Jerusalem. We're talking about the body of Christ. Oh, how blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. How, or we could say under the new covenant, how blessed are those who've decided and made the determination in their cockpit that they will be with the saints on the Lord's day, Lord willing. Blessing, contentment, and spiritual stamina, strength belong to those who do. And again, we're talking about the Lord's Day, Sunday. There, there's, of course, no explicit command in the New Testament. Wouldn't it be great if there was? You shall now not stop worshiping on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. You shall now worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day in the New Testament. There's no explicit statement like that. It is implicit, though. And by that, I mean it's certainly implied. Uh, that the day of the week has changed because we see the church gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And then we do have the command of Hebrews 10.24 that I read at the beginning. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meeting together as, as this underlined phrase expresses. Meeting together describes uh, the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day. And these verses make clear that every believer is summoned to do this. The Reformation Study Bible sums it up by simply saying, uh, by simply saying this. Uh, Assembling with other believers in the public worship of God on the, on the Lord's Day is a duty of the Christian life. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Can we just put this out there and say this is a true statement? And I, I'm sorry if it jars you. Um, I just think this is implicitly implied in the writings of, of the New Testament. And if you're offended by it, then you just need to adjust your thinking. 
we, we back down from this because it's not explicitly stated and we kind of hem and haw, you know, well, it's not really commanded, is it? Yeah. Assembling with other believers in the public worship of God on the Lord's Day is a duty of the Christian life. So this is their determination. They've, they've determined in their hearts to go on pilgrimage to Zion. Again, only three times a year for them, but we're called to worship on the Lord's Day. This is their determination. And from this determination, I want you to see the refreshing. You know, these people aren't determined because it's a drudgery. It's because of what flows from this. Look at verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And scholars aren't sure what the valley of Baca is a reference to. They know of no place named the valley of Baca. It wasn't a rest stop on the way to Jerusalem. Um, valley of Baca, you know, six kilometers ahead. It, it, they don't know what it is. It, early versions, I believe the King James translates this as valley of weeping. Uh, it might be a reference to a type of tree. So generally it's thought of a place of sorrow or, or a place of extreme dryness. And some of the approaches to Jerusalem were, were very dry. So they conclude, many of them, scholars, Bible scholars, that is, that this valley of Baca could be a figurative place representing the state of a person's soul. This makes excellent sense. It, it might be like David's reference in Psalm 143, where he says, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. The valley of Baca might be a reference to a parched land or, or a valley of weeping. But those who determined to worship at God's house, those who have made the worship of God a priority in their homes, find their dry souls watered and refreshed, verse 6, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And think of what Jesus said in John chapter 7 about uh, people who follow him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And to the Samaritan woman, a few chapters earlier, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think uh, if your spouse approached you and said, oh, honey, can you give me a glass of water? Can you go fetch me a glass of water? Whether, whether he or she's been working outside in the yard and, or, or whether just, they're just sitting at home and are, and are really thirsty, would any of us turn them down? Go get your own water for Pete's sakes. Your children... If they asked you for some water because they've been outside playing or they've been working or doing something and, and they need water, would you deny your child a glass of water? And, and a lot of times we have to push this on them to, to keep hydrated. Have you been drinking water? Well, the answer is no. And if we wouldn't deny them actual water, why would we deny the very thing that can quench their spiritual thirst, worshiping with God's people on the Lord's day? The second thing we see is the refreshing that comes, from, comes to those determined to worship at God's house. Those who, worship, those who make worship on the Lord's Day a priority find the valley of weeping 
return to a place of springs. We continue, and not only do we see, second, the refreshing, the, there's another effect from this determination, and that's the strength they receive. Their souls are fortified and spiritually strengthened. We see this in verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Those determined to worship at God's house find greater degrees of strength, strength to strength, as they hear the word of the Lord preached and as they fellowship with their believers. They, they, they receive not only refreshing, but they are strengthened and fortified spiritually. So, I think we can apply this in two ways. And I realize I might be preaching to the choir, to some of you on this, but I'm going to say it anyway, is to make, first, make worship on the Lord's Day a priority in your life and in your family. Set your heart on pilgrimage. Determine to worship with the body of Christ on the Lord's Day. Here's Dr. Ferguson's quote again. Let me remind you of what he said. As a disciple of Jesus, I too should love the church. It should become central to my life. It is simply not possible to live a God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life unless my life is also church-centered. Here's another encouragement from our friend Ray Rhodes. He said this, plan to attend all services in 2022. And perhaps you're going, whoa, Pastor Rob, that is out of control. You want me to plan to attend the Lord's Day every Sunday of 2022. And so Ray writes, do you suggest planning to attend only 65% of the time? Plan for all and see how it goes. Yes, folks get sick, but even so, I always know who will be at church most of the services in the year. They plan to be there. It's not an option not to be there unless they have a contagious illness. They build family activities around church, and church is a family activity. So the first application, simply stated, is make worship on the Lord's Day a priority in your life and in your family. And second, stemming directly from the first application, demonstrate to your children the priority of worshiping on the Lord's Day. This is what we do, kids. Worship on the Lord's Day, and here I'm going to step out and say it, worship on the Lord's Day comes before everything else. Wow, is that radical? Pretty much. Pretty much. Worship on the Lord's Day comes before everything else. Worshiping the Lord God Almighty comes before everything else. Worshiping the Lord God of hosts comes before everything else. Worshiping the living God comes before everything else. Again, let me read you something Ray posted on Facebook a few days ago. When you take the Lord's Day lightly and regularly treat vigorous church participation as if it is an optional activity, do not be surprised at the lack of interest that your children will have concerning the things of God. Yet multiplied thousands today will neglect their church to sleep in take another day off or to engage in some recreational activity during the church hour. The sports and entertainment industries are no friends to your family in this regard. Parents, you must be purposeful. Don't neglect the things that will bring most help to you and your family. The second ingredient is the priority of God's house. If we intend to make our lives church-centered as we 
Here, Dr. Ferguson encouraged us as we see patterned in the New Testament church, then the second ingredient will be this priority of God's house, of, of determining to worship on the Lord's day. And this results in, in refreshing and strength, increased stamina spiritually. There's a third ingredient I want to point out from our passage, and that's the petitions of God's house. Uh, the prayers of God's people offered in worship go into this. Look at verse 8 with me. Again, here's, here's his, uh, at least in this psalm, his favorite name of God. O Lord God of hosts, O God Almighty, hear my prayer. Give, excuse me, give ear, O God of Jacob. Notice this other name, uh, Oh, the God who makes and keeps covenant with his people. That's likely what the reference to Jacob is about. Not only is he God Almighty, the God of all heaven and earth, the God with every power under his authority, he is also a God who enters into covenant with Larry Wing and Tony Norcross and Matt Reese, he enters into a pact, an agreement, and he promises faithful love to those people. It's called his hesed in the Old Testament. He will not break it. This almighty God enters also into covenant with his people. To this God, the author prays. Who, who prays not only based on God's strength, omnipotent strength, but also His covenant-keeping love. <coughs> Excuse me. He prays for the King of Israel. He prays for the King of Israel. As we see in verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look on, your, on the face of your anointed. The shield is a reference to the king and the protection he uh, provides to the nation. And uh, your anointed, of course, is a reference to the king as well. All the kings of Israel, the, the, those who sit on the throne of David, could have been referred to as your anointed one. They, uh, there's a reference to being anointed with oil and how oil was poured on their heads, a demonstration of of a picture of the Holy Spirit's ministry covering this man and uh, preparing him for service to the Lord, uh, covering him with the Holy Spirit so he may serve as, as king or as priest or as prophet. All were anointed with oil. Dr. Lawson, Steve Lawson says, to be the Lord's anointed meant this person had a special relationship with God being chosen consecrated and commissioned by him for a special function or task. And so he, he asks uh, God Almighty and the God who enters into covenant and keeps faithful love with all those in covenant with him. He asks for him to strengthen the king and to bless his reign and to favor the king with prosperity. It's true, of course, you and I can make our requests known to God at any time. Pray without ceasing. Uh, and, and we readily acknowledge that. But in particular, we find strength sometimes from praying with God's people and making our petitions known among them. And, and as we join with other believers in corporate prayer, as we lift up our petitions together before the throne of God, uh, through Christ our mediator, we find, a, uh, we find special encouragement as we see uh, the Lord God Almighty work in answer to prayer. We prayed for uh, Ruth in the trip back from uh, Texas uh, uh, this week and for the unloading. And God apparently did answer in a, in a great way. Uh, we prayed for our church family that's been uh, laid low with COVID. You prayed for me last Sunday morning. Here I am. Uh, Praise the Lord for how he answers prayer among us. And, and so this is another reason for, for longing for the Lord's house and for making the Lord's house a priority as we gather and we pray together and we find encouragement when we see God work 
and move among us. This is a third ingredient in this church-centered life we're talking about. And we develop it by, uh, by the petitions of God's house, by praying together, by praying for other people's needs and, and, and uh, going before God Almighty and, and lifting their needs before the throne of grace. The petitions of God house, God's house. There's one final ingredient that goes into this church-centered life that, that the word uh, we see portray in the New Testament that Dr. Ferguson uh, encourages us to, and, and indeed that I'm summoning you to today. And the third agreement is the provisions of God's house. The, the writer says a single day in God's house is better than every worldly comfort because of the blessings God pours out on faithful believers. And I want to mention two things about the provisions of God's house. I, I want you first to note the advantage that this author talks about. Uh, the advantage of God's house over every other place. Look at verse 10 in your Bible. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So he's saying, I would rather be at worship in the temple uh, than spend roughly three years any place else on the planet. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is, a, I think, a really dramatic statement. He was a doorkeeper. Uh, the sons of Korah were designated uh, by God uh, to be musicians in the temple and to uh, keep the gate, as it were, be a doorkeeper, gatekeeper, uh, he was a doorkeeper. And so he is saying, I would rather stand on the threshold of the house of God than dwell in, in worldly comforts, in tents of, of wickedness. This place is so much better. There are so many more advantages to this place. I would rather be here than any place else on earth. Wow. That is really a, an over-the-top statement. What advantages would he experience at, at the house of God? Well, of course, God is present everywhere. It's one of his attributes, and we affirm that. Even in the Old Testament, God says, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23, 24. Yet God was present at, at the temple in a unique way. His, his uh, glory cloud uh, stayed above the Ark of the Covenant in the very most holy place, the Holy of Holies. So, so yes, he's present everywhere, but he's present in a unique way uh, in the temple. And, 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 and this is in some degrees true for you and I as well. Yes, readily acknowledge the presence of God everywhere. Omnipresent is the word we use. But do we not experience Christ as we hear his word preached? as we hear Christ speak to us, as we experience him in, in the elements of the Lord's Supper, we in some, uh, some way share this with the author that we experience Christ most fully at the Lord's house on the Lord's day through his word and his spirit and, and the elements of the Lord's Supper. The author, uh, uh, again, talked about making petitions known to the priest. Uh, and he would often immediately he would often have an immediate answer from the priest about his request and and we we enjoy this as as we pray together and lift our needs up on the prayer chain and the prayer reminder and pray for each other the the author would have heard instruction from the law at the temple and, and we have this advantage as well we're instructed about what god's word says and finally uh, this author would have uh, fellowshiped with other believers in the temple courts, other believers that came to worship on that particular feast day. Uh, these he would encounter in the outer courts, pilgrims who had also uh, traveled to Jerusalem. And, and we experience this as, as we fellowship with each other on the Lord's Day in the body of Christ. 
And we find encouragement from this. And all this leads, all these advantages lead, lead the man to say in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is the advantage of, of God's house. And then I want you to see the blessings that flow from this. Again, we're met with this word, and we encounter the way God blesses his people uh, through worship. Uh, but I want you to note these blessings that fall on faithful believers. And it begins in verse 11. For, please note the first word of the sentence. He's explaining here why one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For, the reason it's better than a thousand elsewhere, the reason I'd rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of wickedness, is for this reason, because of this. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Uh, the, the, like the sun Shining on a bright day, those who worship at the house of God experience him as the light of life. Steve Lawson says, The Lord God is a sun who shines down favorably on his people with beaming grace. God empowered them and brightened their days. He's also like a shield. Worshippers experience God's surrounding care and protection. And Steve Lawson adds, God is an impenetrable shield who protects his people whenever attacked. So the one who worships it at God's house experiences the Lord as a sun and shield. And he goes further. And not only that, he experiences his favor and glory. As verse 11 goes on, the Lord bestows favor and honor. Favor we could just as well translate grace. Grace, the help and support uh, that God gives uh, to the humble with no thought of repayment, that God gives to the undeserving. Don't we experience the grace of God, His help and His favor as we gather on the Lord's day, as He pours His grace out on us through the gospel and honor when we use this word of God, we translate this word glory. Uh, when we use this word with humans, we translate it honor, reputation, uh, fame perhaps. Uh, the Lord, to those who are set on worship, uh, find great reward in pursuing Christ and worshiping him at his house. The, the massive blessings of keeping and obeying his word. This is what the book of Proverbs describes, doesn't it? Oh, blessed are those who follow the, the, the road to life. But let me tell you about those who follow the road to death. And we see these two contrasted, and, and, and the writer is simply saying, oh, oh, how blessed, how honored is the path to life. And then the, the, the icing, the pinnacle of this blessing, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. A sweeping statement of God's favor and blessing to those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold. Uh, Psalm 34 says the lions may suffer and hunger. The young lions may suffer and hunger, but those who follow the Lord shall lack no good thing. He's not only a sun and a shield, and we experience him this way as, as we gather for worship, we experience and receive his, his grace and his favor, his, his honor, his reward, but further no good thing. Will the Lord deny those who faithfully follow him? And of course, this would include worship on the Lord's day as we've been describing. Oh, a single day in God's house is better 
than any worldly comfort because of the blessing he pours out on his people. So this church-centered life that I began talking about, uh, the one that Dr. Ferguson calls us to, and, and the church-centered life that we see portrayed throughout the New Testament, this, this God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life that's also church-centered. How do we develop such a thing? In ourselves. And if we're parents, and those around us, our children and, and younger believers, how do we become good churchmen? Or good churchwomen? And this is what the writer of this psalm describes to us, who is so obviously church-centered himself. He describes these four ingredients. We develop this kind of life by developing a passion for God's house. And this is, in reality, a passion for God himself. And the beauty of his manifold perfections, his glorious majesty, comes when we develop this passion for God's house. It comes when we make God's house a priority. And, and for us in the New Covenant, we're talking about the priority of worshiping on the Lord's Day. It comes through the petitions of God's house, lifting our needs up with the saints and, and praying for their needs and, and our needs and seeing God work through these and, and, and the encouragement of, of God that we find through answered prayer. And then these provisions that we've just mentioned, the blessings he pours out on his people as they gather to worship him. Uh, God's blessings are poured out as a sun and a shield, his grace and, and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This goes into this church-centered life. So let me... Let me say a couple of further applications. Um, first of all, who am I not speaking to? I'm not speaking to you, a great many of you. Your lives are church-centered, and I commend you for it. Uh, I know that you'll be here, come rain or shine. I'm not speaking to those, uh, our first responders whose employment uh, takes them occasionally out of worship on the Lord's Day. We are grateful for you. We are glad you are caring uh, and showing God's mercy to our community by your job as, as a first responder. I'm not speaking to those people. I'm not speaking to those who experience family emergencies on the Lord's Day and are uh, the ox in the ditch from the Old Testament, you know, where uh, immediacy requires you. I'm not talking about illness. Uh, and, and nowadays we pretty much want you to be absent from the Lord's house on, you know, if you're ill. So maybe you're able to tick off one of those boxes and and be fine. I think I, I guess I'd come to uh, this, uh, perhaps it's point number two, that I'd, I'd point you to uh, this decision. And... Um, I am speaking specifically to the fathers and husbands and the men because this is your decision. You must, men, make it a priority in your family. Hey, this is what we do on Sunday. 
and men, I'd encourage you to take steps practically to, to see that the Lord's Day becomes a priority. No, you may not go out on Saturday night and stay out late. Uh, no, you may not go on a sleepover and be exhausted for Sunday morning. Why? Because we worship God Almighty. Because we worship the Lord of hosts and Jesus Christ, his Son. And he is worthy, most worthy, of our worship on this day. And we set this day aside to gather as his people and come together and praise his glorious name. That's why. So men... Make this decision. Uh, make it with your wife. Be on the same page with her. Uh, this, is a, this is the bar in our house. It, it is geared toward this day of the week where we gather with his people, where um, it is a priority and things that come up don't interrupt that priority because... The God of hosts is worthy of my worship and worthy of my family's worship, and we will make him a priority. This will be a God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, and hopefully church-centered household. Do you think I'm laying down the law? Am I being legalistic? I simply point you to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Uh, let us not abandon the fellowship, uh, fail to meet together and gather as his people, as especially as you see the day approaching. I see the day approaching. We frankly need uh, each other. But most of all, we need the strength and the joy and the contentment that comes from making God and Christ Jesus our all in all. So I, I make this to you, husband and dad and man. Uh, become good churchmen. Become good churchmen where people recognize you as dedicated to Jesus Christ because of your presence at his house. So if I've offended you, uh, feel free to come talk to me. Um, I might not care. I'll, I'll, if you have a plea and what about this, then please do come talk to me. All right, let me close. Father, please take this truth and by your spirit apply it to our hearts and let us glean from this passage. Uh, the church-centered life that this writer of Psalm 84 lived. And Lord, in this new covenant era, uh, on the other side of the cross, let us push in to apply this truth to our own situations that we would, above all, have a passion for you, Christ Jesus. And we come here because we love you. And we want to praise you and we want to hear you speak to us through your word. Christ, do this in us. We pray in your name. Amen.